Well, good morning to you. It is so, so very, very good to come and, and get the chance to be with you again and to be in the Word of the Lord with you again. Uh, that is always a delight to me and to get to come in here and listen to this wonderful singing from congregation and choir and Pendilly and that quartet that has been so very special to me. I sat and listened and thought, I don't, I don't know of anything I'd rather go up there and preach after than hearing these songs was thinking of that song they just sang, His Love is a Boundless Love. And I, I guess if, if all the things that are so disparate in the world, the things that are so, there's such a, a, a gulf between, it's the great love of God toward His creatures. And then to see, to see in response to that how lacking most of humanity is in loving, in loving Him the way we ought to. Amen. The greatest, the greatest, the second greatest frustration to me, I think, in, in life and especially in ministry is the inconsistency of people. The inconsistency of people who say they love the Lord, but it just seems like they're flaky on that. The greatest frustration to me is when I find it in myself. And I try to be aware of that and say, God help me. God help me to love you the way I ought to love you. God, help my heart that it would be touched by the hand of God that I would be able to fulfill that royal law of the Scripture. Do you know what the royal law of the Scripture is? You remember with me that Jesus was once asked by a canon lawyer, a scribe, who, who said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in all the Scripture? And he said, The greatest commandment in all the Scripture is this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second greatest commandment is this, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. If you and I can fulfill the royal law of Christ, I believe we'll satisfy Him. Amen. I like to say it this way. If we can love right, we can live right. And I, I do believe that. Well, this morning I come to you with a, a message. If you'd asked me a, a week ago what I would be preaching on this morning, I'd have told you something different. But uh, the Lord has, has led in a different direction, and I'm doing my very best to follow Him in that. And so uh, I'll be preaching to you from the book of First Kings, from the uh, book of First Kings, just a verse or two out of 17, and then some from 18. But I'd like to begin with one verse from the Psalms. One verse from the Psalms, and it's Psalm number 11, verse number 3. Psalm 11, verse number 3, and the psalmist asks a simple but important question in Psalm 11, 3. And this is what the Bible says. It says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Let that just settle over you for another moment here. That question from the Scripture, just as relevant, just as poignant today as it ever has been. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know the importance of a foundation in construction. You know that everything sits on the foundation. Everything you build, everything that follows has to be on a good foundation. And so you've got to build it well, and then you've got to defend it well, right? Uh, the church that I pastor in Clay City, wonderful people, their building is built on top of a sinkhole. I mean, it just, uh, back in the days, back in the late 60s, they bought some property across the street from the church they were worshiping in at the time, and they built it, and they didn't, they didn't realize <laughs> that all kinds of ground was going to wash away out from under the church building, and so we've been in an, an unending maintenance uh, mode 
of trying to pour concrete and put things back and shore up those things that seem like they're on the verge of, of collapse. Well, God's been good to us so far. The whole thing hadn't come caving in on us. Uh, but, but one day if the Lord allows us to do something different, we're all looking forward to that. You need to build the foundation well, but even once it's built, can I tell you that sometimes it takes some defending in that same, in that same building just a, a few years ago, four or five years ago, we, we started noticing some strange little lines appearing in some of our drywall. And uh, what is going on here? Are, these, are the kids in here doing something? To the, you know how you always blame the kids, first of all, right? Anytime something's wrong. It's, there's probably some un, unsupervised children drawing lines. Well, it wasn't the children. It was termites that had come in and... They had already, and we opened up and looked down into the foundation of our building, and they'd built these little, these little mud columns and tunnels, wait, reaching their way up to get, into the, to get into the wood, and then they began there. Well, well, I'll tell you what we did. We went out and bought the best poison that they said they could sell us, and we just pumped it in there and sprayed it all over everything. And we didn't just want to kill them. We wanted to good and kill them. I mean, we wanted them dead. And so far, so good. It's been a few years ago, and we hadn't had a problem like that. You've got to build a good foundation. You need a good foundation, and then once it's built, you've got to, you've got to defend it. You, you know, of course, I didn't come to talk to you about our structural problems in Clay City. We're not talking about architectural foundations. We're talking about spiritual foundations. Spiritual foundations are extremely important. Spiritual foundations are, in fact, they're everything. They're everything, right? You have to have a good foundation because everything that's built is built on the foundation. Amen. It's built on the foundation. And if you build everything else beautifully and perfectly, but the foundation is lacking, all of that comes to naught eventually. All of it ends up just being a waste of time, a waste of effort, a waste of money, a waste of resources, a waste of sacrifice. And so, and so on those spiritual foundations, I just want to submit it to you that you need a good solid foundation and you've got to defend it with all you got in you. Amen. I'd like to pair that little question in, in Psalms 11.3 with a quote from one of my favorite authors, um, A.W. Tozer. And this is what A.W. Tozer said some years ago. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Now, if that is true, if that is true, I wonder what the reason for it is. I wonder if the reason for that is that their relationship with God being empowered by the Holy Spirit was their foundation. That was what they were living from. That was everything. That was what gave them a reason to get up in the morning. That was what gave them the unction to preach. That was what defined their fellowship. That was what gave them their belief, their doctrine, what they received from God through the Holy Spirit every day. Every day they understood if God's Spirit doesn't give us what we need today, we cannot go forward. It never entered their minds to think. Well, we'll do the best we can. If He shows up, He does. And if He doesn't, well, we had church anyway. Have you, you, ever, you ever thought like that coming to church? You, <laughs> hallelujah. What a, what a good statement to be able to make. A lot of people, I think, believe that way, though. They think, well, let's go to church. 
And, and you know, maybe we'll get lucky. <laughs> maybe we'll get lucky and the Holy Spirit will show up today. He probably won't, but we'll at least we can say we've been to church. Can, can, I, can I tell you what? There's a foundational problem here. Right? Not, not here, but I mean in that kind of thinking. There's a foundational problem when, when we start looking at this, this, this involvement, this continual interchange with the Holy Spirit of God as being secondary and not absolutely primary to who we are and to what we do. Are you following with me today? You understand what I'm saying to you? All right. If we might just look at a case study from the Old Testament. Did y'all find 1 Kings yet? It's over in, well, the Old Testament. It's right before 2 Kings, by the way. If you found that, go back one, and you'll be, you'll be right on it. That's it. All right. So I'm going I'm to just catch a verse or so out of, uh, out, of, out of chapter 17, maybe just one verse, and then we'll flip ahead. This is very familiar. You learned this years and years ago in Sunday school or Bible school or something like that. I'm not... I'm not going to find something in the scripture that you've never looked at before and considered. Uh, but if we might just take a look at it again. In, in 1 Kings chapter number uh, 17, verse 1, it says, And Elijah uh, the Tishbite. I, I, I just paused for a moment there. I like what I read in one commentary about it. This man of God who comes out of nowhere. I mean, God just picks him up and sends him into the landscape. This man who knows the Lord God. This man who is differentiated from almost everybody else, even among Israel, because he knows who God is. Where did he come from? Well, we're not really sure. The commentator said Elijah from Tishba or something like that. <laughs> we, don't even, we don't even know. He comes out of Podunkville. I mean, he's from the backwoods. But he comes with power. Amen? He comes with power. So let's watch what happens. And Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now you know the reason for that. This isn't just Elijah being hard to get along with. This isn't just a man who's been given power from God and it's gone to his head. He's come with that message because there's been a foundational problem in Israel. Among these people who were, who, were, who were called by that sacred name that God changed Jacob's name to. Your name used to be Jacob, but now I call you a prince with God. That's what Israel meant. And all these years later, a nation still called by the name Israel, prince with God. My goodness, how things have fallen so completely apart for them. There's been a huge foundational problem, and the problem is this. They just really don't even know the Lord anymore. They don't even know Him anymore at all, and so God pulls Elijah out of Tishba or something like that, and He says, go speak to the king for, him, for me and, and, and tell him I'm going to withhold the reign of heaven. And so it says in chapter 18, verse 1, it says, it came to pass after many days. These many days are about three and a half years went by. Can you, our sister over here and I were talking this morning, the rain out here, I'm never a big fan of seeing it rain. I know it's necessary. I wish it would just rain at night and then be sunny during the day every time, but God doesn't seem to be interested in answering that prayer request of mine like that. But, but uh, we talked about how we need, we need a little rain. We probably do for it. It's getting a little dry down where I live too. And that's just after, after a few days without having much rain. Can you imagine if, if, if three and a half years had gone by and not even a drop of dew anywhere to be found in, on, on, on the land? 
the devastation that would come. I mean, things are desperate at this point. They're desperate at this point. It came to pass that after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. So God is getting ready to move. The time is right according to the consideration of God. God was in charge of that. God decided when the people were ready to be confronted with the truth. Now we pick it up again down in verse number 17. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. You know as well as I do that the Baals were those false gods of the Canaanites that, that after God had delivered the land to these people. They had forsaken the living God to serve those dead false things that those who came before them had served. Elijah looked at the king and said, It is you and your father's house who have revived that which ought to have been buried a long time ago. You've brought back a curse upon these people and you call me the troubler of Israel? You have led them into folly. You have led them into ignorance. I haven't troubled them. You have. Verse 19. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Uh, I have to notice here that, that someone is clearly in command and for a moment at least it isn't Ahab. It isn't, it isn't it isn't the king, it's the prophet. Hallelujah, when the prophet speaks with power. Amen. Hallelujah, when somebody has the word of God and they're not afraid to use it with boldness and speak the truth. And so he tells the king what's going to happen. I know you want my head. I know you can't wait to, to see my body dragged through the street. But we're going to have a little, a little, a little get-together first. You get those 400 props. Maybe they'll, at the end of the day, maybe they'll be jumping up and down and rejoicing while they drag my corpse around. But, but, but in the meantime, you just go get them and, and let's get together up on, Mount, up on Mount Carmel. And so we pick it up, look at it, verse 20. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people answered Him not a word. It, it was almost as though they'd lost their voice. Or almost as though they'd lost their breath. I read something the other day. I don't know what to make of it. I'm not trying to tell you to go home and write this down as doctrine or anything. It's just something I'd consider with you. Somebody, somebody was reflecting on the fact that in, the, in that Hebrew, in the name for God given in the Scripture, uh, we, we put vowels in it so that we can pronounce it, but that there are no real vowels in the name of God. So what we, we have as Yahweh actually does not have the A sound or the E sound in it. So instead of it actually being Yahweh, it really sounds more like this. The God who lives is the God with breath. Breathing, living God. And Elijah looks at these 
Elijah looks at these men and women gathered on Mount Carmel and says, well, what about you? Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the living God? Or are you going to serve the Baals? And it's like they couldn't find their breath. Well, they'd given up on breath a long time before that, hadn't they? Hadn't they? They'd walked away from God and they had served these false things. How did that happen, by the way? Just pause and think about that with me before we read any farther. How how did these people who, I mean, their forefathers came through the Red Sea on the dry ground. They watched all the might of imperial Egypt drown behind them. The fiery flame of the column of God's presence divided them from their enemies. Amen. God was was their leader and their vanguard. Amen. They had seen amazing things. They had seen the 12 stones that were set up by the Jordan River where God showed them a Again, his power in bringing them into the land that they possessed. They'd known the Lord. And now these people, they don't, they don't seem to know any. How did that happen? Can I ask you, that? How, how does that happen? Did it happen one day? When, when one day they got up and said, you know what? We ought to be a bunch of backsliding hypocrites. We ought to walk away from the God who has done everything to redeem us and give us all His great blessings and we ought to go serve dead false things that don't have any breath. You think they had a moment, one morning they got up and all of a sudden, I don't know, their, all their coffee tasted bad or whatever it was. And you, you know what, it's just, a good day to, it's just a good day to become apostates. Of course it didn't happen like that. You know it didn't happen like that. It was a little at a time, a little at a time. They sold away their own experience. A little at a time. By the power of, I I can't think of any other thing, but by by that deadly power of distraction. By the way, friend, that deadly power of distraction will work on you and me too. That's, That's not consigned entirely to the days of the Old Testament. The, the, the power of distraction takes people who are on fire for the living Christ and turns them into used to bees. When I, well, I was going to tell you a story, but I remembered we're live streaming, so I think I'll just reserve that one instead. But, uh, that power of distraction can take people who have a testimony and can absolutely destroy it. The power of distraction can take people who have had a prayer life. You all were talking about how to pray, how to pray, how to pray. I like that. What a way to, what a, what a thing for the people of God to know how to do. I think, you know how I think we ought to, we ought to pray, the, the, the key to praying with that intercessory prayer. I think we ought to pray like savages, right? I like savages. Like we're going into war and we mean to take absolutely no prisoners. Amen. Just like we, we're in it to win it here. You know what I'm saying? I think, that's, I think that's a powerful thing for us to be. People who used to have a, a vibrant, full prayer life where God moved and God answered and things happened, but now it's gone. It's gone. It's done. The power of distraction. The little at a time it took it. I assume this is what's happening here in, in Israel. Not in a moment. Not in a day. But many days strung together, giving in to the power of distraction. And now a whole generation of these of these princes with God don't even know the Lord God at all. Amen. They don't have any breath to even answer. Verse 22, and Elijah said to the people, I alone am left the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. 
And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. We're both going to make an offering to the gods that we believe in, but, but if there's a God out there, He ought to be big enough to set it on fire for Himself. Amen. Hallelujah. Don't put any fire on that thing. In verse 24, He says, Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, He is God. And so all the people finally found their voice and said, It is well spoken. Verse 25 says, uh, now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of, the ba- of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us! For there was no voice, there was no breath. There was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them. I wonder if we don't do enough mocking anymore. I just sometimes think it'd be kind of fun to get into that, mocking the enemy. But I guess it's not really how we do things, is it? Elijah was in for it, though. He, he mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's meditating or he's busy. You know, I bet he's got a lot on his mind. He's got to sit down and think it through. He's got to sort it all out. You all have overwhelmed him. Just give him a minute, you know, keep on with it. Hold on. He's busy or he's on a journey. Maybe he got so tired he had to take a nap. Perhaps he's sleeping and must be must be awakened. Well, don't give up yet, fellas. Keep on now. Keep on hollering. Keep on shouting. Keep on dancing. All these things you're doing. So verse 28, so they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out, gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. Um, and boy, that all looked good, didn't it? Except for that last line of verse 29 but there was no voice no one answered no one paid attention you know until you get down to there I think these guys have got it going on you know I got to tell you I mean these guys act like they know how to do church right I'm serious about that I mean you know it's easy to just jump on these prophets of Baal as being false false teachers and 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 evil men which they are but if all we're looking to do is put together a good church service I mean, these guys are pretty good at it. You know what I'm saying? I want, look, look, just, just take a quick look at that again with me. Let's see, let's see what happened here. It said, it said here, you, you guys pick out whichever bull, and you, you prepare it however. And apparently there's two bulls here, right? Two bulls. And that's, that's something because these bulls, I mean, there's not many living bulls left in Israel after three and a half years of drought. Most of the livestock is dead, right? But here we got two bulls, and, and they look at these bulls, and he, he, you, you guys pick it out for yourself. Whichever one you think is best, you, you pick it out. And so they, they stand back and they take stock. I don't, know, I don't know how they chose between those two bulls which one of them would have suited Baal better, but I, I guarantee you that when they, when they set about the task of picking out a bull, they wanted to give the best one, right? They didn't, they didn't look at the one that was closest to dying and say, well, let's just give him that. He'll be satisfied with it. Probably not church people of today then. Yeah, yeah. And so 
they pick out the very best one that's available to them and they say, well, that's the one we're going to. And then, and then they, they kill that bull and I, I don't. I don't know how they killed it. And I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us any record of exactly how they cut it apart, how they arranged the pieces, what they included with this burnt offering and what was described. I have no idea. But, but here's what I know for sure. These men knew exactly how to go about doing that in keeping with their teaching, in keeping with their doctrine, right? Right? I mean, these 450 prophets, I mean, they've been to Baal Seminary. You know what I'm saying to you. I mean, these are all, these are all doctors of their faith. These men are all well-educated in how to go about the worship of Baal. And they are very faithful. They're very, very faithful in the preparation of, of their system of worship. Yes, we'll do this. Absolutely. We want that bull. We'll kill it this way. We'll, we'll, we'll dismember it like this. And we'll stack it on the altar in just this way. Faithful preparation. Oh, I believe in faithful preparation, don't you? You're getting nervous on me, I can tell. We're going to circle around. There's going to be the turn somewhere in this message. You can see it. I hope you can see it coming. But anyway, but, but, but I, believe, I believe in faithful preparation. I, I believe sometimes we dishonor God because we're not faithful in preparation. Amen? Amen. How many times, let me ask you, how many times have you come to church and you felt like you just couldn't get your heart in it, like you just couldn't worship the Lord, like there was something holding you back. And maybe you even, you even said to somebody, you all pray for me, the devil's just been so mean to me, he's just been hard on me, and that's, it's causing me trouble worshiping God. Well, maybe that's the case. But maybe, just maybe it's the case that what you failed to do was preparation in that prayer closet to secure for yourself the anointing of God. To come and worship Him. Amen. Maybe your heart wasn't prepared. Maybe there were too many of these distractions still going on. Yeah, you see what I'm saying to you? Well, here, here are these men worshiping this dead thing. And there's faithful, there's faithful preparation. These men are, are serious about it. They're not taking this lightly. They're not just saying, ah, it'll be good enough. Let's leave it on one of these guys. He'll take care of everything. And the rest of us just kind of go along. No. Every one of them is... Highly invested, highly invested, faithful, faithful preparation. And, and, and it said, and, and then they, they started from morning even until noon. Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. You know how, how sometimes we have, this, we have this thing about like the altar call? We love to see people go down there and pray at the altar. Right? We love that. Get to the end of a good service, the altar call, somebody goes up there and they're having a moment with God. How wonderful is that? But now look, it's been three minutes since you went up there. If you ain't got it said by now, go back and sit down. You know? Hey, look, some of us got lunch plans. We, we got things to, we ain't got time for all this carrying on. We ain't got time for all this praying. Well, well, the Bible just told me that these false men, these evil men, when they were worshiping Baal, that all morning long they kept on in fervent prayer, fervently pleading before the God that they believed in. Oh, Baal, hear us! And then, not only then that, but then they got carried away and they gave up on their dignity their personal dignity. The Bible said that they leapt about the altar. They leapt about the altar. They were dancing. They had given up all restraint. They weren't worried about protecting their own dignity. But they were, they were, they were fully bodily and, and, and mentally and emotionally engaged in what they were doing. 
I wonder sometimes if, 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 maybe, if maybe a part of our problem, I'm not saying this is true about you, it's probably been true about me a few times. I, I wonder sometimes if a part of our problem is that we're, we're more careful, we're more careful about protecting our own dignity than we are about honoring the holiness of God. Now, if that's, if that's the case, could it not be said that you, in a moment, are an idolater, a backslider? Just something to think about. Here are these men. They're, they're leaping. They're, they're dancing. They're shouting. They're jumping up and down. They're willing to put up with a, a, a mocker. <laughs> And it doesn't make them stop. They cried out even louder. And then, and then what does it say in verse 28? They cut themselves. I mean, they were willing to bleed out their lifeblood if necessary. They're pouring their own blood out of their veins and they're, they're smearing themselves in this blood. There's pain involved. There's, there's strength. There's, 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 there's the onset of weakness that comes. And then it says in verse 29, when they did all that, then they took to preaching. Yeah, it says, it says and when midday was passed, I mean, they prayed all morning. They shouted, they jumped, they cut themselves. And then they said, well, well, brethren, I guess it's time we preach. And so it said, and they, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening service. Why, wow, you're kidding me. That preacher didn't, didn't have to look at his watch and just say 45 minutes and I got to go sit in. No, they preached all day. They went back and forth, all of them preaching, preaching, preaching. Prophesying in the name of Baal, right? I gotta be honest. I mean, it looks good. It really does. It, there's something about this that really looks good. There's this part of me that thinks about the people that are involved in, in leading the ministry of the church that I, I almost think I wish that we had a little. I won't say that, but there's a part of me that wants to think that. <laughs> My wife and I, you know, I've gotten to that age where I can say the other day, and it, in this case it means probably close to 20 years ago. Well, something like that. We were, we were traveling to, I think we were traveling over into Virginia. I was going to go preach over there, and we stopped at this place, I don't remember, somewhere in, in the mountains of West Virginia, this arts center there, and they had all kinds of crafts and arts and things, and while my wife was looking at things I really wasn't that interested in, I found a place they sold books. Now that gets my, that gets my attention, and so I was flipping through the, the book. I found a book. I, I, I read a few stories out of this book, and I thought, so many times I thought, I wish I had just bought that book. Wonderful little book. And it was True Stories of Appalachia. Now I don't know if the stories are true or not, but the author told them as though they were true stories, true happenings of Appalachia. And then in the book, I remember standing there, my wife off looking at some kind of, I don't know what it was, to be honest with you, probably some kind of quilted purse, but, but I'm reading this book, True Stories from Appalachia. And one story in there just stuck with me, and I've thought of it, and I've laughed over it so many times. But here's the story. Apparently, apparently way, way, way back in, in, in the early, early days, uh, when, when railroads started to be, to be laid and built into the Appalachian region. This is in a time before newspapers being available there readily. This is certainly a time before television and internet. People lived pretty closed off lives there. They didn't, they didn't see a lot of what happened three hollers over. And uh, so, so they didn't, you know, they weren't really world savvy 
in, in a lot of ways. So when this railroad came through, it, it started bringing other things in. And, and once there was, a, there was a circus that was being brought into the mountains of, I don't know if it was East Kentucky, West Virginia, Tennessee. I don't remember. I don't know. I don't think they said. So there's, there's a train carrying a circus. Only there's a problem. They have a, a, a minor derailment of some cars. No big deal, except one of the cars tipped completely over and broke open and Escaping into the, the mountains of Appalachia, there is a large African elephant. Run off. <laughs> it's gone. And so they thought, well, we got to let these people know. And so they went down to the, the nearest town and they found whoever the local sheriff was. And they said, they said, Sheriff, we just wanted to put you on notice. Just be aware that, that we've lost an elephant. And he said, and what is that? And they said, well, you'll know it when you see it. Because it don't look like nothing you got around here, right? Yeah. And he says, all right, well, if we hear of anything, it might just sneak by us. And they said, no, no, no. <laughs> it won't do that. <laughs> it won't slip by. You'll see it somewhere along the way. Somebody will find it. And it, it wasn't too long until somebody came riding in, and, and they said to the sheriff, something terrible has happened out at Widow Smith's place. I think her name was Smith. I'm going to use Smith anyway here. And, and, and you need to go out there. We don't know what it is. She's very, very shaken. And you need to go and see her. And so he, he got on his horse and he rode out to the ridge where Widow Smith lived on her little farm. And uh, she was sitting on her, on her rocking chair on her porch and her hair was just, she'd been through something. You could tell she'd been through something awful. And the fence around her house was down. The fence around her garden area uh, was down. And she just looked just, just dumbstruck. And he, he, he walked up onto her porch and he said, Miss Smith. And she said, oh, Sheriff. Oh, Sheriff. And he said, well, what, what's happened here? What was it? And she said, I, I don't know. She said, it was, it was almost the same size as my house. And it came through here. It looked like it was covered in gray leather. And she said, he, he just, it just walked through my fence like it wasn't even there. Just, just like it didn't even slow it down. And it had this big tail. And with its tail, it pulled up every cabbage in my garden. He said, it did. And he said, well, what, well, what did it do with it? After it tore up the cabbages. She said, well, Sheriff, I'd rather not say. <laughs> when you don't know the difference from the front end of a thing and the back end of a thing. Are you with me? Y'all following me here now? You, you, you got this picture in your mind. I'm sorry. I know that brought in sanctified preaching probably. I don't know if it was or not. But I'm trying to get somewhere with it. I was determined when I read that. I thought, I know that'll preach somewhere now. But any, when, you, when you don't know, listen, when you don't know the difference from the front end of a thing and, and the back end of a thing, you get some real funny ideas. You get some weird ideas about, about which way something's going and what it's doing, right? And as confused as Widow Smith was, she was closer to understanding things than these people here were in that day. So much that looked so good, but it was altogether bad. It was altogether backward. 
So many things that seemed like they were right and they were decent and they were in order. But there was something that was foundational that was altogether wrong. You know what it was? You know what it was? These people with all their faithful preparation, these people with their fervency of prayer, these people with, with, their, with their lack of worrying about their own dignity, these people who would pray and who would preach all day long until the sun goes down, these people did not know the presence of God. You hear what I'm saying to you today? Nothing else matters when the presence of God is gone. Nothing else fixes that. Nothing else stands in. Nothing else is a substitute. The presence of God through the Holy Spirit is essential to what we do. Tozer said 95% if the Holy Spirit never visited us again. If He completely withdrew 95% of what we do, it would just keep on doing it just like we've always done it. What does that tell you about how we've always done it? Whose strength are we living it in? Whose strength are we walking in? Right? Yeah, but that early church, they'd have stopped in their tracks and said, we can't go one step farther until we get this settled. Amen? And, and, and it, said, it said, then Elijah, verse 30, said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was it was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench around the altar large enough to hold, to hold two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood and said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I'm your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. He didn't pray all day long. He didn't cut himself and shed his own blood. He didn't wail. He didn't leap. He asked God for something. Verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. How did He do it that quickly? How did He get in contact with God that quickly? How did He pray that quickly and get an answer? A friend of mine in Tennessee very, very gifted artist. She paints beautiful pictures. She says, as she's gotten older and her hands have gotten shakier, she almost exclusively paints landscapes now, she said, because they're more forgiving. She said, if I live long enough, I'll just be an impressionist painter. <laughs> she painted a beautiful picture one time, I remember, and she'd worked on it about a week. And somebody, and somebody asked her, they said, Glenda, how long, how long did it take you to paint that picture anyway? And she said, about 40 years. 
Well, they said, you, you started painting on that canvas 40 years ago? She said, no, I started on that canvas about a week ago. And they said, well, what do you mean by 40 years? She said, it's taken me 40 years to get to the place where I could paint that picture. It's taken me 40 years of getting to know the paint and the brush and the canvas to learn how to see things as they really are and to be able to put them where they go. It's taken me 40 years. Can I tell you that Elijah, Elijah prayed a simple prayer and he got a powerful answer. That wasn't the first time Elijah prayed, right? You know, you know what's really going on here is Elijah is a man who's practiced living in the presence of God. I'm really getting down to what I'm trying to say to you today. Elijah is a man who has practiced living in the presence of God. He never let anything, even wonderful things, be a substitute for that. He never let going to the right kind of service at the right kind of church. He never let going off and, 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 and you know, writing long books about the right doctrine. All those things are fine and wonderful. But he never, never, never let anything stand between him and living in the real, genuine presence of God. Right? I want to remind you of something. In, in the Revelation, when Jesus has John write uh, those letters to the pastors of those churches, do you remember what He said to the, to the angel of the church in Ephesus? In Ephesus, He said, I know your doctrine and that you believe the truth. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Where are you? Where are you? You left your first love. You know how to pound the pulpit. You know how to instruct those in error. You know how to say, I can find the fault in any doctrine. You let me watch a TV preacher for 15 minutes, I can tell you exactly what's wrong with him. Well, I enjoy That's fun, isn't it? <laughs> if we think so. But it's not the same as living intentionally and continually in the presence of God. In the presence of God. Can I say to you, if, if we're really looking to have revival... Not just in the next few days, but, but real genuine revival. Can I tell you that what that must mean is, is it'll be a revival of, of God's people living in the manifest presence of God. That's what will separate us. That's what will differentiate us. And I'm not telling you doctrine's not important. I'm not telling you that, that practices and preparations aren't important. They certainly are, but they'll never be the adequate substitute. How about you? Can I ask you that just point blank today? How about you in your own experience? Has it become about the machinery and the mechanisms of getting up and getting to church, coming to Sunday school, sitting through the service, bringing a covered dish for the dinner that follows? Hallelujah. Thank you for that. But, but has, it been, has it been genuinely you living in the presence of God? The Gospels tell the story about one family member who sued another family member. And they demanded of a judge that they would issue an injunction. You're thinking, where's that at exactly? Who's the judge? It was Jesus. Who's the family members? Martha and Mary. Martha says, now Jesus, <laughs> I'm trying to prepare. I'm trying to get everything set up. I'm trying to do all these things. And there sits Martha or Mary like a knot on a log just sitting there at your feet. You tell her to get up, to get off her backside and get in here and help me. And Jesus essentially says to her, Martha, I know you're busy. 
I know you're busy. But somehow in your busyness, you have lost sight of what Mary is doing right now. She's not being lazy. She has pursued my presence, and I'll not take that away from her. There'll be time to fry the chicken later, or not. But right now, Mary is doing the needful thing. And why aren't you sitting right beside her? Why aren't you right here? You know, sometimes, sometimes <laughs> I kind of think about Martha. Martha is the original, we, we, we use this phrase nowadays, we talk about people who do all kinds of virtue signaling, right? Talk about how these folks out here, they, they're trying to show everybody how good and righteous they are, and so they virtue signal. They're, they're wearing everything on their sleeve all the time, all the things that you, I'm doing and saying, so you know I'm a good person, you know I'm really... A, Martha was a virtue signaler. She was, she was wearing her busyness like a badge of honor. Only the Lord did not. Right? And indeed, he indicted her for it. Martha, what you really need to do is just stop a minute, sit down, and spend time with God. We talked about prayer, interceding like a savage. <laughs> I, think, I think you're right, the conversation somebody referenced earlier that, that we don't know how to use prayer, weaponized prayer, I think, was, was what I heard Troy say earlier. That's important to learn, but, but, and, and I, I think we should do that. I think we should pray powerful prayers. But can I, can I suggest to you something else that's needful? Contemplative prayer. Say, what is that, brother? When's the last time you opened your Bible and it just told you some attribute of God and you just stopped reading and you said, God, I just want to spend a few minutes in prayer just thinking about how great that is, that that's who you are. When's the last time you, you got out your hymn book at home? You got a hymn book at home? I hope you got a hymn book at home. Open, open up those hymn books and, and read the poetry there and just let it speak to your spirit about who God is to you, who Jesus is to you. And you say, God, now in this moment, in this moment, I just want to be in your presence. Just be in your presence. Can I, can I just make a, a, a bold assertion to you today? Just right now today. Here in, a, in two or three services from now, Nathan, Nathan's going to be here preaching. And praise God, he's a much better preacher than I am. He's going to do a better job preaching. And Mike Worley, oh, I love to hear Mike Worley preach. And these guys are going to be anointed. I know they are. And it's going to have a powerful effect. But, but can I just say to you something, really? Revival is not up to me or to Nathan or to Mike. And, and, and here's the thing. If, if, if Christ is always the same, and if His Holy Spirit is always the same, then, then we're not really saying, oh, God, you know, throw us a bone here and come and be something other than you are. What we really have to be saying is, God, help us to be different than we are. Right? And so, so what I want to boldly assert to you is this. Friend, if in the next few days you would, you would make it your intentional focus, not two minutes at a time, but, but carve out some time. You don't find time to do important things. You make time. Carve out some time and say, God, I just I need to get away from everybody for a few minutes here for a little while and just ask that your presence would come. Just come, Lord. I don't need to ask for anything right now. If you lay something on me to pray about, I'll pray about it. But what I'm looking for, more than I'm looking for an answer to prayer, I'm just looking for the God of heaven and earth to come and be with me. God, I'm just asking for you to come, for, 
as your Shekinah glory filled the tabernacle in the wilderness. Come and fill up my prayer closet. Come and fill up my heart with just your presence. Just your presence. Just your presence. Right? Why, why, why do that? Why do, because if you don't know the presence of God, the distractions of life are going to kill you. They're going to kill you. And the worst part is, you won't even know you're dead. You'll still be mechanically religious. You'll still come to church. You'll still show up for functions. But somewhere, it's going to be off the mark when your heart's not in it. Amen? Amen? So, so today, I know this is a simple message, and that's all I'm really capable of anyway, but I just want to give to you this invitation. I wonder, would there be somebody today who might say this, Lord, it's been a little while since I've really just sat at your feet. It's been a while since I've just been in the presence of God. It's been a little while since, Lord, I wasn't worried about anything else other than I just need you, Lord, right here in living presence before me and me before you. Friend, if it's been a little while, it's time. It's time. How long will you halt between these different opinions? How long will you falter? How long will you live that way? That's what Elijah asked him. I guess I can ask you the same thing, can I? How long will we be satisfied with less than our Savior right here? You know what the Bible says in the book of Colossians? I was going to read it to you. I'll just try to quote it best I can from memory. But Paul, one of Paul's favorite words is the word mystery. Mystery. I like the word mystery too. The thing that is hidden. The thing that, that, that the angels and the patriarchs desired with fervent desire to look into. But it was not given to them. Because of this, God intended to make it known to you. To you. The mystery of the ages. Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Amen. The hope of glory. Oh, man. Y'all forgive me. I could get carried away. I'm not going to. I'm going to quit talking in like 30 seconds. But when I, when I think about that word hope, the word uses the word hope and don't even know what it means. To have hope is like being pregnant. Something's got to happen somewhere. Amen? Right? It's on its way. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The presence of Christ filling you and coming through you. Amen? Amen. Or, or, by the power of distraction, by the power of the cares of this world, you can trade all that in on cold religion that doesn't ever do anything else. Has it been a little while? What a wonderful thing to be in a place with an altar that is prepared where you can come and seek the living God. Amen? Amen. Brother, somebody come lead us in a song if you need to pray. Well, by all means, do so. Number 141. 
started out with that verse from Psalm 11. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We got a lot of stuff we do. It's fine if it's built on the foundation. The living presence of Christ. The living presence of Christ. If it's built off of that foundation, it's not going to last. It's not going to work. Friend, how about for you? Really, just genuinely right now, just, just us thinking together, just us talking together. I have to come and pray. I have to come and pray because there's some days that I have gotten so busy, so busy that my prayer life has been just a ritual, just, a, just an obligation to say a few words to God to remind, to remind myself that I belong to Him. But it's not been searching prayer. It's not been a prayer of invitation saying, come, come, Lord Jesus. You've knocked at this heart's door. It's always open to you. Come in and dine with me. Come in and spend time with me. Lord God, I'll push aside every other concern. And really, that's where it's added, isn't it? That's where we fail. We are unwilling to push aside every other thing and just seek the Lord. Elijah from Tishba or something like that, was a man of incredible power who commanded the king of Israel. Elijah was a man of incredible power not because he was a man of great oratory or fancy words. He was a man of great power because he knew what it was to live in the presence of God daily, 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 daily. There's not one reason in the world why you can't be just exactly like that. There's not one reason in the world this man out of the old law, out of the old covenant, this man with such limited understanding of things that you can open your Bible and read clearly about. You can read in the Bible where it says that you are not your own, but you were bought with the precious blood of Christ. Amen? Elijah didn't know that. You can open your Bible and read where it says you were redeemed not with gold or silver or other things, but with, but with that unfailing blood never gets old never corrupts it never degrades this wonderful blood of Jesus has done is there any reason why you cannot live your life every one of you every one of you in the presence of God in a, in a profound way or we can or we can just go through the motions some days I've gone through the motions I gotta be honest with you those are days lacking in everything that I really need do you have that need? Do you have that need in your heart, your life? Say, God, I will. I'll put aside every other concern. I will do that, Lord. It'll hurt. I'll feel it, God. But I've decided that I'm going to pursue the Lord with all my heart to stand in your presence anyway.